0: So welcome to Ingest. If you're a new listener, welcome to this podcast series where I talk to specialists about various conditions and presentations in gastroenterology. And we cover when to suspect, who to refer, how to investigate, and how to manage common gastrointestinal presentations and conditions. Today, we're talking about chronic diarrhea, which is a really common presentation in primary care. I'm joined by Ramesh Arasaradnam who is really a fantastic person to talk to us about chronic diarrhoea. It would be difficult to find someone better than Ramesh. He's written the BSG guidelines, which were published in 2018, on how to investigate people with chronic diarrhoea. So I'm going to ask Ramesh to introduce himself now. Thank you so much, uh,
1: Charlie. That's a very kind introduction. Uh, It's very, very very generous. So, indeed, so... uh, As Charlie's mentioned, I'm Ramesh Arasaratnam. I'm a gastroenterologist, um, but I I also have a chair in medicine at uh, Warwick University and Leicester University. Amongst my other roles previously, whilst at the British Society of Gastroenterology, I was involved in uh, the development of the guidelines that Charlie's has um, alluded to. And it was really um, very much uh, in need of updating uh, This was the third edition of the guidelines that came out in 2018 Uh, the first one was actually the second one rather was back in 2003 yes that's 15 years ago and lots lots of has happened but one of the key important bits in 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 this guideline really was we were very keen to have a clinical focus so if you look at the guidelines hopefully at some point uh, i hope you will agree there has um, and has been an effort, at least on our part, including our primary care colleagues, so Pali Hungen, who was very much involved uh, in, as a co-author, in terms of how we actually approach the patient uh, with chronic diarrhea. The other important addition was the fact that we also have a small section in, in primary care uh, in terms of when patients actually first uh, present uh, to their primary care physician. And the final aspect is the main, uh, the figure, the algorithm that you might want to have pasted or, or, or on your or, you know, in your clinic room, Figure One in particular, whereby you will see the contrast from the 2003 guidelines, where it was very much hierarchical way of looking at it. So you do one test, you wait for the results, then you do a uh, another test. And it was a stepwise progression starting from a f- simple full blood count right down to a CT, for, for example. We we believe that's not right in, in modern medicine. Uh, and I think a lot of things can actually be done either simultaneously. But more importantly, there has been the uh, uh, introduction uh, of newer tests. So screening tests, stool tests that we will cover perhaps in the next uh, questions i get lots of questions about faecal
0: calprotectin and faecal hemoglobin fit i'll I'll leave it there Um, thank you charlie thank you ramesh I, i completely agree the guidelines are really good um and there's definitely uh, a good primary care focus so i would recommend that after you've listened to this episode if you haven't already do go and have a look at them uh, really clear and there's actually also a really good bjgp article review that um was brought out a year later so in 2019 which really highlights the areas which um which we as gps should be drawn towards so i'll put that on the show notes as well so that people can have a look at that so Ramesh, this is a huge topic, it it really is, and we're not going to be able to cover every single aspect of it in this podcast, but what I'm hoping that we can do is give GPs some tools so that they know what sort of questions would be useful to ask during that 10-minute telephone triage, which is essentially what we're doing quite a lot of the time now, so what sort of discriminatory questions we can ask to differentiate between different causes, Um, What sort of investigations should we be starting in primary care? And then a bit about who should we be referring on? Who needs a colonoscopy? Um, Those are are really important questions that hopefully by the end of this episode, our listeners will have a better feel for. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us what is chronic diarrhoea?
1: Gosh, Charlie, that's, that's a, 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 we, could, we could have a couple of podcasts just specifically on the definition of chronic diarrhea. Now, you might recall, we, we, we moved away from the, the really esoteric definition of looking at fecal water weight-based um, and definition of chronic diarrhea, and that really stems back to the days when you, uh, of dysentery uh, uh, where you had typically watery diarrhea. We realized that really is not practical at, at all. Um, and in essence, I think the best definition, as I was taught by my mentor, Chandu and chronic diarrhea or diarrhea is really what the patient defines it to be. Uh, in essence, uh, anything that changes from what they, their normal pattern is to suggest that the frequency and the consistency has changed and increased, then by, uh, by definition, then you have someone uh, with diarrhea. And we use the a time interval of six weeks, I accept that's largely arbitrary. And that really reflects simply because of evidence suggests that if it was acute, uh, mainly suggesting a more infective cause by which time most would have settled really by that time. So, therefore, if if it is persisting beyond that time with increased consistency uh, and increased frequency then really you are now dealing with someone with uh, a chronic
0: diarrhoea. Great, that's really helpful. I think we've covered quite a few of the sort of things that we're going to ask in the history to try to define what they mean by their diarrhoea we're doing an awful lot of telephone work nowadays, and often the consultation will start with a telephone call with the patient. And obviously you've given us some ideas about what we can ask with regards to the diarrhea. It'd be really helpful if we could, if we could look at some of the red flags that we should really be making sure that we're eliciting in a patient with chronic diarrhea. And then as you've just alluded to, some of the questions that are gonna discriminate between a functional cause and an organic cause.
1: Thank you, Charlie. So, I, I think to be honest, uh, this will be very much like teaching um, uh, uh, grandmothers to suck eggs. I, I think uh, primary care physicians are already very good. There was a very good study that actually showed uh, a few years ago in the north of England, in terms of general practitioners uh, without this was pre utility of fecal calprotectin, that their clinical instinct in terms of determining those who might have inflammatory bowel disease versus those who didn't was actually pretty good and was almost comparable to the use of faecal calprotectin. And so I think if nothing else, uh, my main message is, you know, trust, do trust your, your, your clinical I- intuition, even if the tests may come, may come back normal. Remember tests are, are just a guide uh, really uh, to help confirm and refute. Uh, they shouldn't really make, make you turn away from what you, your gut feeling is really telling you about someone that you've actually talked to, known to for many years, or seeing right in front of you, really. The, the, the red flags, uh, as you all know, uh, you know, it's it's the uh, the, the, the weight loss, the, the the bleeding, the rectal bleeding in particular, uh, the uh, and then when you do come eventually to to examine them, of course, then any masses that you might feel either, either within the abdomen, Or or per rectum, and I think the digital rectal examination is probably one of the most important examinations that one can do um, in primary care. It can tease out a lot, a lot of information, uh, and give you equally reassure. Uh, both yourself and the patient, uh, but also then trying to determine about uh, referral and speed of referral, really based based on based on based on the examination. Now, remember, of course, uh, and I caveat this with this being mainly my 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 view. A lot of the symptoms, red flag symptoms, come from the nice guidance that I'm sure all of you know by heart. That was very helpful, or thought to try and be helpful in terms of this helping one tease out the, the high risk group versus the low risk group but sadly that was purely based on symptoms and in fact as already alluded to as you take the history you probably work out that there's something not quite right here even even if uh the they don't have uh or if red flags are absent are absent so don't be dissuaded again if red flags are absent not to refer them, but they are just, again, remember, they are a guide to help you determine really how quickly, should I ex- escalate this? Um, should I see this? Or is there, could there be something more serious going on? And I think it comes back to our earlier point that those red flags probably point to an organic cause uh, rather than a functional cause. If they have a nocturnal type diarrhea, that usually is uh, often patients very rarely will to come out with that you have to really ask for that specifically and actually it is very troubling as you can imagine it disturbs your sleep and these are the people who might actually present to yourself as uh, as tired all the time and feeling tired and if when you delve in a little bit more it's actually because their sleep is disturbed why is their sleep disturbed is because they're getting up three times to go to the toilet that usually suggests irritability within uh, usually within the colon but potentially sometimes even in the small bowel. Uh, We see that very often in those with uh, early signs of inflammatory bowel disease, uh, particularly if it's not uh, settling. But the other common condition, which we'll probably touch on a little bit later, is is a condition called bile acid diarrhea. And the importance of that is because it mimics very much irritable bowel type uh, diarrhea. And it's important uh, to distinguish and uh, we will talk a little bit about that later, is because it's completely treatable. The other salient feature I think is worth asking about is urgency. Uh, certain patients may not have true change in terms of their bowel habit pattern per se, but they may have episodes of urgency. And by that, I mean, when they have to go, they have to go. They literally have to get off their seat. Or, or often I have many patients tell me they're in the middle of a meeting and they just have to leave. Uh, they can't. They have to plan their school run around the fact where they know uh, whether they can make it back in time because they know they might get some urgency. And some of the more classic ones that I have is uh, patients that I, I knew who would uh, train commuters knew at every stop where their toilet was because they needed to know if they can get to it on, on time. So urgency is quite important to ask, and of course that might reflect several things. So inflammation is one. So particularly those who have proctitis uh, will usually typically complain of that. Of course, the more sinister pathology that you think about uh, uh, in terms of rectal type lesions will produce that, but actually they they are far less common and you probably would make that diagnosis by the time you get to examination. You don't need to do any fancy test uh, to pick that up. Uh, and the third condition comes back again to our old friend, the bile acid diarrhea. Because of the small bile irritation, they actually get, an, and the spillover of, spill of bile acids within the colon, which then increases their transit and causes this irritability. Hence, these patients actually have increased frequency and, and the urgency, um, which, which which would give you sufficient clues that. Hang on, this this is something uh, not quite right here. Bloating, I think, is probably one of probably one of the most commonest symptoms that I think uh, most of us would see, and sadly, it's very, very um, uh, non-specific as a clinical symptom, really. But uh, but just do be mindful of of it. The persistence of symptoms, of course, is uh, is is important. There may be other keys in the history, for example, travel history uh, and so on and so forth. I think more poignant to what's occurring recently I think recent COVID infections are important as you know so there's some the data that came out so this was published last week in Journal of Clinical Medicine which is the Royal College of Physicians official journal which has shown that up to 20% of people actually much higher than we thought um, with um, COVID have actually have uh, GI symptoms And these are very vague GI symptoms that one pre-COVID would have probably just labelled labelled as functional bowel disorder. Uh, But more importantly, in those with persistent COVID, so long COVID, up to 14% may have persistent bloating and diarrhea. So I think another nuance now that we need to be mindful of in the the COVID era, I think I would also ask, have you had COVID and did you have any GI symptoms? The people who had GI symptoms from the beginning are more more than likely than to have it uh, persistent um, for four for weeks to months again this is all very new so we don't know the natural history whether it just beat us out whether you just sit tight and do nothing at the moment in my practice and this is my practice although we do not have the evidence base for it i am uh, observing uh, a more watchful waiting approach i caveat that by saying that following reassurance with normal blood tests and normal fecal calprotectin, you know, or fecal hemoglobin tests, et cetera. So some basic screen line blood tests. And if it's all normal, then it's reasonable to, and again, no red flag symptoms, then reasonable to to watch and wait. However, you know the evidence may change in the coming months. Uh, by the end of this year, we may be having to 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 deal with them very differently. I, I've touched on stool tests, so I think I think I, I think it's it's time that we we kind of deal with this. Um, Stool test, of course, the the the, the anathema to our biochemists, uh, really, and to be messing around with this, but it does really give one a, quite a lot of useful information, and one has to do that, of course, as you all know, coupled with some basic blood tests. So, the, the basic screen with someone with uh, persistent uh, a, a diarrhea, you know, is, I'm sure you all do the full blood count, but I think uh, a thyroid function test is very useful. can pick up a lot of dysthyroid disease that's subclinical sitting out in the community and of course i would encourage you of course also don't forget the the celiac screen Um, again important not to miss that we know that actually five percent has actually missed despite actually looking for it because often what happens is the blood tests are done when patients uh, have already started to exclude gluten from their diet so Always, I, uh, I would advise when checking celiac screen, which is great, but always double check that the patient is on a normal diet. Otherwise, uh, a normal celiac screen will give you false reassurance. And that's probably what happens quite a lot. And then celiac disease surfaces many years later, when actually it was probably there, but because they had uh, on their own put themselves on a gluten-free diet. There's a big fad, as you can see, uh, particularly in Australia, just to eat gluten-free food. Uh, for no reason at all these are perfectly uh, people who are perfectly fit and well but Mm. there seems to be a fad in certain areas and and in certain Mm. sections in 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 Amsterdam I'm I'm
0: told by my colleagues uh, I've heard that it's um quite a few sportsmen follow a gluten-free diet that it's uh, meant to be quite good for that and actually um Novak Djokovic he's uh, I think he's he's very into his gluten-free diets as well so um ah. a performance enhancing in inverted commas um diet yes. potentially so yeah i think it is very popular now
1: I- interesting and it's all legal as well so yeah, <laughs> yeah. so maybe yes uh, certainly why why they feel they, they, they'd like to go down that road uh really um so um in in that sense yes so so, so some basic blood tests on that front then comes stool tests now I've always get asked this, you know, calprotectin was there, but now we've got the fit test. Um, uh, and when I, we, we, when we refer to fit, really, I, I think the ideal word really is fecal hemoglobin. And the reason for that, I, I, I am being picky about nomenclature here, is simply because it, you all might be familiar, familiar with the older guaiac-based test, uh, which is absolutely useless. Uh, because of its so considerable cross sensitivity, extremely poor specificity. The fecal hemoglobin is much better, uh, the fit test, because it really targets, so it's an antigen antibody testing, but it really targets the human uh, moiety of the globulin chain. It does, however, require uh, the patient to sample that. They come with a special kit, very similar to what. Is happening in, in the bowel cancer screening program and they for some amazingly they do really manage quite well actually with it um or, or, uh, to, to get uh, return that test uh for you whilst as with any test it, it does have limitations the, the test uh for fecal hemoglobin the uh, current advice for cutoff based on nhs england and probably most of the data would suggest that if you use at 10 micrograms um, you it has a very high sensitivity, about 92%. Uh, and since specificity is also in the high late 80s, uh, 90s, you know, it's 88 to 90%. It's a pretty good test for a simple baseline test. And really, the evidence would suggest that um, between fecal calprotectin, remember, is looking specifically at inflammation, whereas the FIT or fecal hemoglobin is specifically only looking for hemoglobin. So one must make that and understand that two important distinction.
0: So if someone, if, if we're speaking to a patient and they've had um, fit testing on the screening program, say four or five months ago, um, and then they're coming to you with this, with this diarrhea, is it reasonable to repeat the fit or is that unnecessary? Could you to give us some guidance around that?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, actually, Charlie. So um, at the moment, yes, there's a lot of debate about repeating uh, of tests, Um Uh, There are some studies, but I think only so far, only the York study, which has shown, but they repeated it within a space of, I think it was uh, interval of 10 days or something like that. They didn't show much benefit. But if it's a matter of weeks, uh, and if something has changed, I think it's perfectly reasonable from a clinical point of view to, to repeat it. Because we also know there's a sampling error. Um, it, the, it's very much dependent on the patient taking their fit picker. It's called a fit picker, which is exactly what it is. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a short brush with some uh, very coarse bristles at the end uh, where they have to just sample the poo. So if they missed the bit that had a bit of blood, the first time around, you might pick it up the second time around, which might then change your course of how you manage uh, that that patient. So yes, I think if in doubt, I, I think there's, there's no harm in repeating it, because like a lot of these tests serial testing uh, does give one some idea um, about the, the risk um, uh, of, of harboring in, in, in anything serious, uh, coupled, of course, with, with what you find on, on history and examination. I think the fecal calprotectin probably has a role if you know there's inflammation, but perhaps more so for monitoring. So I think in secondary care, we are absolutely very, very much reliant on the calprotectin for disease monitoring, knowing when to start, stop drugs, sometimes even we use it to determine whether a patient needs a follow-up endoscopy, etc. As a baseline investigation, I think in primary care still has a role, for example, a 30 year old whom you know in your gut has got irritable bowel syndrome, but you just want that little bit of assurance. I think a fecal protecting is very good, uh, an ideal test Then just to give you that edge that uh, uh, and confidence to say, yeah, this is IBS, you know, uh, hmm. uh, take some uh, antiemetics or uh, antispasmodics. I beg your pardon. And
0: what sort of level would you say would be a reassuring level for that patient that you've just mentioned?
1: Yeah. Now, this is where it gets confusing. Now, only because there are different kits. Uh, 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 Laboratories use different kits and therefore they're different cutoffs. So I would suggest follow whatever cutoffs that your local laboratory has already set because they would have done the various quality analysis and the sort of uh, in-house validation to determine for your local population what that is. Broadly speaking, the two main... Uh, kits that are used uh, throughout, uh, mainly in England, are the Thermo Fisher kits and the Bullman kits. Now, if you're using Thermo Fisher uh, platform, then it's 50 uh, micrograms per gram. And for Bullman, it's slightly higher, it's 100. The other thing to bear in mind also is that if it's inflammatory bowel disease, it's usually a lot higher. I mean, we're talking three, four fold higher than whatever uh, normal cutoff that your local laboratory has set, really. Uh so again you can be confident uh that it's um you're not missing it. The difficulty is as some of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, what that is exactly the problem, the gray area between the normal and that two, threefold <laughs> um higher. And 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 that is correct. Uh, that is and it still is very much a gray area. Um, I think you're very much left coming back to basics, really, your history examination and whether you feel that there is something more uh Uh, serious here that warrants investigation and I think the mantra of if in doubt then I think just ask ask for second opinion really Uh, I don't think there's
0: any harm with that. Would you do you think that um, stool tests for um, MCNS has a role here so looking for infections in chronic diarrhea?
1: Chronic diarrhea I think less so I think that's very much you'd be very much guided by by that in the history Uh, travel history where they've come from and also maybe certain outbreaks that you're aware of, or if other family members aren't well. And I think uh, you raise an important point there, Charlie. So if you thought that was the case, then please don't do a fecal calprotectin because it will be raised and doesn't really help you uh, on that front. Because if it if it is, remember, uh, calprotectin tells you if there's inflammation. So if you had an acute infection, uh, be it bacterial or viral, uh, 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 even a viral um, diarrheal illness, it, it will push that up pretty high. Uh, so it won't really help you uh, any further, so don't do the fecal care protection if if you suspect infection, then get a series of at least minimum three stool cultures mm. uh, uh, to, to give you or exclude that as 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 a possibility. I think those tests are helpful in terms of uh, determining organic uh, pathology. Uh, but I think just to also reiterate the the Irritable bowel syndrome, I, I know, is, is, is a big proportion of what's seen in primary care, and I'm fully aware that in secondary care, we only see a fraction of that iceberg, but we see the difficult ones that haven't tolerated or, you know, standard first-line treatment or are extremely, extremely anxious and are looking for further reassurance. Um, but within this cohort, as I mentioned, up to a third of those who are presenting with diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel actually may have a condition called bile acid diarrhea. And bile acids, as we all know, are produced in our liver and gallbladder. They're essential for digestion of fat. So it's a problem. It's a modern man problem where fat intake has increased considerably. Now, the beauty of bile acids, uh, as we know, um, is it's a 90 to 95 percent. Well, 92 to 95 percent is actually reabsorbed uh, through our circulation through the small bile and back into the liver and gallbladder. And it's stored there and then recirculated. So it's a very efficient recycling system, two to 3% is excreted in the stool, which what gives you that kind of greeny uh, or uh, more greeny color um, uh, um, uh, within within stool sometimes. Now, if for whatever reason that recycling system is disrupted either through an operation for example gallbladder operation or bits of your small bowel is removed through an operation again or if you had Crohn's disease of your upper small bowel then you could have excess bile acids spilling over uh, into your gut and as we discussed before the irritation there can cause patients to have quite chronic watery diarrhea with a lot of urgency there is a proportion, of course, where they don't have an obvious cause. what we used to call idiopathic or primary uh, bile acid diarrhea, and this is very common because they, they they have symptoms very much similar to irritable bowel syndrome, their demographics are similar, it can occur in men and women, they're usually younger, people uh, really up to the 40s uh, and so on and so forth. But if you confirm the diagnosis, uh, and that's really done through a radiological test. Often, you want, one would have to refer them to secondary care, although there has been a vogue uh, that GPs could make that uh, make that referral. But once that test confirms the diagnosis, then it's treatable uh, by sachets or tablets, which effectively sequester the excess bile acids. And the reason I'm harboring on this is, is because it is quite common. It's more common than has been alluded to. Uh, we, we believe it probably is in the region, although we don't quite know uh, the full prevalence of the disease, but probably in the region, about 3 to 5% of the population may be walking around with diarrhea undiagnosed, thinking they've got irritable bowel syndrome, and actually they have this condition, and it's completely treatable. Um, hence, the, 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 the awareness that we are trying to ensure that if you think about it, then you, I'm sure you, you'll test for it, and then you can exclude it uh, on that front.
0: Thank you. That's. I think that's really helpful because quite a lot of the time we are dealing with patients who have normal tests and we're making this the diagnosis of IBS, but often those symptoms aren't settling down. And I think one of our difficulties as GPs is that we often don't have access to those further tests. So, for example, in my area, um, we as GPs can't, can't arrange a CCAT scan to diagnose bile acid diarrhea. Um, and that does make it quite challenging, especially when you say how common it is. Um, yeah. I mean, is there is there an argument to give them an empirical treatment with a with a bile acid sequestrant that you mentioned or, uh, you know, what are your thoughts around that?
1: Great question, Charlie. So, again, very often get asked this and it's often an issue even in secondary care. So, yes, at, at first glance, that might seem a, a, a quite a logical uh, way forward to give them empirical treatment. The, the the only issue which we 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 would I suppose advise against that is simply this, because A, the treatments, particularly the sequestrants, are particularly unpalatable. The tablet cholisavolum is actually unlicensed for this condition. It is used, as you know, for treatment of hypercholesterolemia. So and it's it is a little bit more expensive. So it's useful to have a firm diagnosis whether you have it or not. But coming back to the initial point, because it's unpalatable, often compliance becomes poor and then they often take it for a bit and then take and then stop it. And then you never really know, is it because they actually took the drug or is it because they don't have it, have the condition. The third point actually is that the severity uh, of the bile acid diarrhea, which one gets a gauge, an idea from the level of the CCAT scan result that you alluded to, does give you an idea of how you prescribe and you're starting prescription dose so you'd probably start with a higher dose if you know that they have severe uh, bile acid diarrhea versus if they had mild then you probably use a, a lower dose so all that helps in your prescription and also the patient handling of, of, of the drug actually um so for those very reasons we 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 like to encourage a positive diagnosis, very much like the NICE guideline does with irritable bowel syndrome, uh, encouraging uh, clinicians to make a positive diagnosis, not the diagnosis of exclusion that was prevalent, um, you know, up to five, five six years ago uh, prior to this. So it's helpful to do that um, uh, in that sense. And then I think finally also patients like to know that you've, you've taken an interest, you've done these various tests have excluded it. Uh, and we find also then, and if all that's normal patients, then perhaps uh, a proportion will actually be more accepting uh, of their condition and saying, yes, this is it. You've done all the tests. We've done looked for the common things. And it isn't one of those. Of course, there will be that, that very small, tiny proportion that will always uh, be, be, t- be tricky to, and challenging to kind of resolve, but, but we, we, we get there
0: uh, in the end you you'd you left yourself you set yourself up for this question Ramesh so what about the patient where nothing seems to be working and we've done the tests and we've done the ccat scan and we still we're still really struggling to manage them where do we go next
1: yeah so great great one Charlie so yeah um this actually is probably more common than we think uh it is uh, and I and I fully sympathize um for those who are having to face with with sometimes uh very distraught patients i get a lot of uh, tertiary referrals for, for, for these patients who you know have had a whole batch of tests i mean it sometimes is incredulous they've had loads two three endoscopies i'm thinking goodness you know if it's normal it's normal you know um, uh, and, and repeated testing because they're so convinced that there's something wrong and i think it's you you, you go down uh, the patient then feeds the anxiety and then the clinician then also then feels obliged to to, to follow through and it then becomes very hard to break that cycle um so m- what i always tell uh, uh, my 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 genius in clinic and so on what i always do is i, I sit back um and, and i look I, I, and i take a step back which is often easier sometimes because when you're approaching it fresh Uh, and more objectively, because not having met them, is really take a um, a step back and really try to go back to basics. So I really go back through the history and examination again, the history is key, and really try and tease out what actually has been going on. And often there may be some subtle triggers there. Um, I'm not saying that you might pick this up on the first consultation, but actually, maybe in primary care, you might be more likely to pick this up if you've known about them um, and i'm thinking about subtle things in the history for example uh bereavement uh subtle social stresses um uh going back to the childhood um i'm not saying you know to do a full uh psychotherapy consult but there will be things that they or little hints that patients will actually drop if you ask the right questions um about why why do you think this started? How far back does this go? Can you think of specific triggers? Who else has this condition? Things like these open-ended questions, but at the same time, uh, hopefully in most cases, we'll, we'll tease out if there are particularly pertinent issues within that. And then I think it, the second aspect I always say is it's about adjustment of patient expectation. I think it's worth spending a bit of time on, uh, on realigning their expectations of what these tests do. So we go through the tests and I say, you've had this, this basically means you haven't got exclude A, B and C. This means that you haven't got unlikely to have this. No uh, no one test is perfect. I I, I digress slightly, but I think it's also important to say at this point, everyone thinks colonoscopy is is the be all and the the great test. But remember, and do remember, as someone that does colonoscopy, we can miss cancers. Uh, Colonoscopy has a 2% miss rate of cancer. Um, and so it's important to be aware of that, and and I understand that, which is why sometimes people repeat the examination, which you know it's yeah. But you, it, but repeating it, you're looking for something very small, and patients often have very dramatic symptoms, and they often don't marry uh, together, uh, if that makes sense. Um, so. Once you've readjusted their their expectations, then I think I tend to focus then on what their specific symptoms are and then try to deal with how we can try and address that, uh, basically. In certain circumstances, and this is really more for secondary and tertiary care, really, where some tests are normal, it is sometimes uh, occasionally worth revisiting revisiting certain things. Like uh, now we're talking for rare conditions like microscopic colitis. Uh, or bacterial overgrowth, et cetera. Or patients may have read about this and may, may bring this uh, little Google sheet uh, uh, to you. Uh, and yes, I think it's, you know if their symptoms fit, it might be worthwhile uh, um, indulging uh, and exclu- excluding that test. But if they have had all those tests and it's normal, then I think it's worth then uh, readjusting the expectation and then trying to work out what their main symptoms are and then trying to address that. Often it's helpful to do that jointly between secondary and primary care rather than say nothing wrong, discharge back. I think that's helpful. And I really do try to avoid that certainly in my practice by really stipulating very clearly what we discussed and what we think is the best way forward uh, in terms of their overall, overall management. Finally, I think you probably have hinted at this, if not all, you know, they probably do need some element of, 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 of psychotherapy or uh, and if you have input to uh, uh, improving access to psychotherapy in your region, I think I find that's a useful um, exit uh, resource for patients uh, to help them manage with with largely anxiety driven uh, issues. But I think folks in primary care are well versed in, uh, in in handling that, so we bring close the loop uh, then on, on that front um if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so really difficult, um, difficult situation really. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's very hard. I saw a patient in primary care and, I, and, and he had a diagnosis of IBS and he said, uh, I've got incandescent bowel syndrome. He didn't feel it was irritable. This was incandescent. actually his symptoms were really, really difficult. And he had been, yeah. gone, he'd gone through every investigation and it's, it's very difficult. I think it can be hugely impactful to a patient. Ramesh, we're going to come to an end very soon, um, but maybe we could just cover a couple of key points if that's all right. So, um, so Ramesh, who does need an endoscopy? Are you able to give us a, a list of those that you think should get a colonoscopy Gosh, or who should yeah, have a but, flexible that's... sigmoidoscopy?
1: Yes, that's a great question, (laughs) only because I think we can't even agree on that (laughs) in secondary care. I think COVID has really taught us, to be fair, I think COVID has really taught us some very important lessons that we can help with that. Now, lower GI uh, endoscopy, which is where there's been a considerable backlog, as most of you are aware of, um, has led to us trying to, to, to use various tests to try and streamline how we do that. Now, that's where the fecal hemoglobin test comes into it. The guidelines, uh, as I mentioned before, will be coming forth. NHS England have purported, uh, I, I don't fully support this, but they say suggest that if, it's, if your fit level is less than 10, they suggest it can be managed in, in primary care. But I, I would caveat that by saying, look, despite the fit level, if the patient has symptoms... And primary care, if your GP is concerned, you should still refer, regardless of what that fit level. So, if you take nothing home from today, please do not be falsely reassured by a low fit level, fecal hemoglobin level. Despite if your if your examination and history tells you otherwise that there's something not quite right, please do refer that patient. Um, the, the the issue with colonoscopy capacity has been has been much debated and that's where some of you may be aware of newer technology called colon capsule so this is pill on the camera we've had it for a while where we focused mainly on small bowel the technology has advanced a bit better where because there's a camera on both sides and you've got a nearly 120 degree angle on both sides ends of the capsule is a bit like a horse pill uh, so the colon capsule has been introduced introduced to try and relieve some of that waiting list uh, capacity and I think young people where who have a low fit level where the threshold of finding pathology is very low, suitable for colon capsule, simply just to give that reassurance actually uh, that yeah, the colon is normal. Now the data in the screening population is very good for colon capsule, it's still very much in the infancy in terms of those with symptoms, but yet it's been rolled out quite rapidly. Uh, within in England at least. Scotland have been using it for a lot longer and they have found it to be very very useful and so we're kind of re- very much reliant on their data on that front. So those are the options that one would have uh, uh, that would be really a decision made at at secondary care colonoscopy or colon capsule. Now flexible sigmoidoscopy I think is probably underused I think particularly in the younger patient with rectal bleeding, in the old days where they'd be just be put through a colonoscopy unnecessarily. So if you want a quick diagnosis, I think that's where flexible sigmoidoscopy is very helpful. Um, And it also allows you to then to take sample biopsies. We also know most of the pathology uh, in terms of inflammatory bowel disease or microscopic colitis, for example, you'd pick it up on the left colon. So you're not really missing much pathology. Just by doing a flexible uh sigmoidoscopy in in these patients. Having said that, um, each individual trust may have its own kind of pathway and protocols in terms of who who gets what. What I have noticed is that certainly with COVID, for most almost every unit that I know of now vets all referrals. So we 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 look at uh, the constellation of uh, we look at referrals coming through their blood tests, their symptoms. Often they've had some imaging already and then we, I, I often downgrade a colonoscopy request to, to a flexible sigmoidoscopy simply because they've had a CT scan or a normal fit and we think well actually it's unlikely to pick that up in a, in a 40 year old or 35 year old so we'll just, and end symptoms only, rectal bleeding for example, then a, a flexible sigmoidoscopy is, is more than more, more than sufficient uh, on that front. I hope that helps and uh, hasn't confused. Yeah, people no, that's,
0: that. no that's been really good. Well, that's been such an interesting discussion. I've learned lots. So I found it really interesting about the nocturnal diarrhea being quite an important feature. Um, absolutely fascinating about COVID and diarrhea. So that's a real um, eye-opener for me. And I really liked your kind of key take-home, which is, you know, as a GP, trust your gut. And if it doesn't sound right and you're not happy with it, despite normal investigations, still make sure that that you you either refer your patient or actually we've got good access to advice and guidance as well. So yeah. there is that option as well. Ramesh, do yeah. you have any other key messages or have I sort of stolen your top ones there?
1: Not at all. Yes. No, I think you've summarized it well. I have to say, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm old school. I still miss the old days when the GP is to just pick up the phone and say, I've got this patient. What do we do? Um, I, I think it, it, it was quicker, but I understand our working patterns have changed so much, which is just such a shame. We're just all of us are just rushing to see. Uh, you know, hundreds of patients in ten minutes. It's it's um, it's just a, such a shame, actually. Uh, but yes, but at least you, you've got the option for advice and guidance that we can we can give you some uh, some quick yes no's or or, or try this uh, sort of thing. Um, no, I, I think as I said, I'm just anxious to get that message across. If if in doubt, please do do call do do refer, um, and especially with the faecal haemoglobin test. Um, you know, it's relatively new test. Uh, but, you know, uh, just because it's, it's, it's a low test, um, don't, don't feel, um, if, if you feel there's some other more, more sinister signs or something's not quite right, please do refer, don't, don't, feel that you're, don't feel obliged that you have to not refer them.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for listening. So to all our listeners, thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you found it useful. I certainly have. Um, and, and thank you so much, Ramesh, for giving us your time and for talking to me.
1: Not at all. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Charlie, for the invite.
0: Thank you.